be in Matthew 22 today, and as you have already heard and should know, today is Vision Sunday here at Cornerstone. Now, what exactly does that mean when, when we say we're going to have a Vision Sunday or a Vision Day? Is that like the day that we give out free eye exams? I mean, what, what does that mean? Vision Sunday is simply a day that we set aside to cast a vision, to give us a, a theme that God has given us for the year. It is a goal, if you will, that we are going to set before our eyes and reach for throughout the year. It at least to some extent throughout the year, finds its way into the preaching and teaching, into the discipleship ministries. It helps engage the ministry events and functions for the year. It gives us a spiritual focus that we want to aspire to reach for in the coming year. And God spoke to me about a vision for this year as I prepared and preached and followed up on a message I preached here on September 11th of this past year. The message, if you want to go back and listen again, in our Year of With Jesus series was entitled, Moved with Compassion. And that thought that I want to share with you, that I'm excited to share with you today, is simply this idea of love God and love others. To love God and to love others. That's what we're going to reach toward in the year ahead what would you say is the highest duty or priority of the child of God? If perhaps you and I were to sit down and to have a discussion about that, and maybe we would throw scripture verses even at each other and talk about some different ideas or qualities or characteristics or activities of the child of God and say, well, I think that this is the highest duty or calling for the child of God. And you would say, well, I think that this is, and here's why. Perhaps we could come up with several good ideas or thoughts about the highest duty or priority of the child of God. But I think that Jesus answers the question for us here in Matthew 22. In this passage, Jesus has a conversation where he's asked a question, and his response illuminates the answer for us. But let's talk for just a moment about the context so you have an idea of what is going on when this conversation takes place. You have to step back to Matthew 21 to find the context for the conversation. 
Matthew 21 opens with Jesus' triumphal entry. What does that tell you? Jesus is entering his Passion Week in a way, especially in the eyes of his followers, his disciples, Jesus, as he rode into Jerusalem on that day on the donkey, he was presenting himself as Israel's king, as the Messiah. Jesus, of course, knew that that was not how the week was going to play out. Jesus did come humbly, lowly, riding on that donkey, but he did so that first time to present himself as Savior, to give his life a ransom for everyone, for the sin of the world. But it was that time period. And over the course of that week before he's betrayed, arrested, and crucified, Jesus goes about his business, his ministry. He's teaching the people. He once again went into the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and drove out the, the business that was being transacted in the house of God. And he taught the people. And in Matthew 21, some of the religious leaders, the Bible refers to them as high priests and scribes and elders. This would be members of the Sanhedrin. They come into the temple and they interrupt Jesus while he's teaching the people and they demand an official answer from him by whose authority he was teaching. What they wanted to know was, who have you been trained under? Who do you claim as your rabbinical leader that gives you the authority to come into the temple and begin teaching the people? And that opened a confrontation. The Bible tells us that Jesus was asked three questions, first by the Pharisees, then by the Sadducees, and then again by a member of the Pharisees. And they're trying to trip him up. They're trying to get the people to see that Jesus isn't all they thought he was. That he can't even answer some of their questions. The first question they asked related to tribute. And they were attempting to pit Jesus against God or the civic authorities. And they really didn't care which one. They, they thought, well, if he answers this way, it'll show that he's not... As much for he's against the civic authorities, and that's going to cause problems for our people, and he'll he'll trip himself up. But that didn't happen. The Sadducees, who were the skeptics of the day, they appeared to be religious, but the Sadducees actually denied a lot of biblical doctrine. For example, they did not believe in resurrection. And they asked Jesus a question pertaining to resurrection, not even believing in resurrection. They were the, the rational, liberal, religious skeptics of the day. And they wanted to make Jesus appear foolish in the eyes of the crowd that he was popular with, but instead they were the ones who ended up looking foolish. And then the third question that is the context of Matthew 22 where we're focusing on was presented by a singular member of the Pharisees that sought to trap Jesus in relation to the word. 
how silly and futile it is to try to chip, trip Jesus up in relation to the word when he is the word. And yet that's what they sought to do. It's in this third question in the ensuing conversation that we make our focus, not just of this message, but our vision for the year. I believe in this conversation, Jesus illuminates the answer to the question, what is the highest duty, calling, or priority of the child of God? This morning, we're going to focus on expositing the text and just making spiritual truth come alive to our hearts And then in tonight's service, as we continue Vision Day, we're going to focus more on practical application, highlighting some ministry highlights for the coming year. Let's look together, if you would, at Matthew 22 and follow along as I read verses 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees had heard that he put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him, and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and thy, as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now there is so much that is going on in this conversation that doesn't just jump off the page at us, that we need to unpack to really understand completely what Jesus is doing here. The Bible identifies the person who came forward to ask this question. He was a member of the group of the Pharisees, the Orthodox religious Group, the ones who accepted the entire Old Testament that were the, the most straight, if you will, doctrinally and as far as orthodox in that day. But the Bible identifies him as a what? Lawyer. We actually addressed this briefly last week, but let's remember what a lawyer is scripturally. This isn't a legal attorney. This is a scribe and a teacher of the Mosaic Law. He was an expert of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible in which were encapsulated the law of God. If you were to ask, in that day especially, the Orthodox Jew, what is the theme of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah, they would tell you God's law. That's what it's about. All of God's law is wrapped up right there. But, but this lawyer is not only an expert of the Torah, he's also an expert of the oral law. The oral law was the 
traditional interpretation of the Torah that was passed down from generation to generation. Later it would be recorded, it would be written out in what is called the Mishnah and then the Talmud, uh, which are uh, followed and studied by Orthodox Jews. The law, not the oral law, but the written law of God is not simply the Ten Commandments. You realize that, don't you? It is actually a total of 613 commands found in the Pentateuch that were divided into 248 affirmative commands and 365 negative commands. The reason that the oral law is the view... Uh, excuse me, the reason for the oral law is, is the view that the written law, God's law, was viewed by the Jews as insufficient to guide their life and practice. Now think about that for just a moment. 613 commandments. That's not enough. Does that sound silly to you? It does to me too. Like, there are 613 commandments. And by the way, we freely admit that no one can follow them perfectly. But it's not enough. And so they gave these oral interpretations, added to, it was passed down from generation to generation. They wrote it all down almost in a commentary form in the Mishnah, and then the Talmud adds even more to it, all because they have this view that God's 613 laws aren't enough. They're not sufficient to guide us in our lives and in our practice, yet they admitted that no one could keep the commandments perfectly at all times. Okay, so here... 613 laws, that's not enough, let's add to it. Oh, but we know we can't keep these perfectly. So then, the experts divided them into what they called heavy laws and light laws. And they taught, let's focus on the heavy laws and we can kind of ignore the light laws. We can, we can put those aside. Does that just sound kind of oxymoron to you? It, it does to me a little too. But that was their belief, and that was the way they lived. So when this lawyer approaches Jesus asking, what is the great commandment in the law? Understand that all of this is at play. He's an expert. 613 commands, but that's not enough, so we've added all this oral tradition along to it. And by the way, in our view, the oral tradition is right up there next to God's revelation as far as authority, maybe even a little higher, because it brings the sufficiency to our lives and direction. All of this is in his mind and his heart as he approaches Jesus and says, what's the most important? What's the greatest? Now, we know how Jesus answered, but I want you to think for just a moment about how Jesus could have answered. Who is Jesus? He's God. I'll tell you what Jesus could have done. He could have done the same thing he, does, he, he could do with us. He could have responded to that lawyer and say something along these lines. 
why question me about the greatest commandment in God's law when you've been unable to keep his law and his covenant right along? Jesus could have addressed Israel's covenant failure. Jesus could have gone back to the record books and said, you want to know what God's greatest commandment is? You're trying to trip me up in relation to God's word, to his law, to his covenant. Let me tell you something. You can't even keep God's law. You can't even be faithful to the covenant he made with you. He could have done that, couldn't he? And from a particular perspective, he did. Jesus identified two key revelations that every Jew was very familiar with. First, Jesus identified a command that comes from the Shema. Earlier, Pastor Ronnie read from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. That passage is referred to as the Shema. Here, O Israel, our Lord is one. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind, and, and continuing. But that particular passage was really for the Jew a, a declaration of faith. And the Orthodox Jew would recite this declaration of faith daily. So when Jesus refers him back to the Shema, this is not something that he or anyone else there would have been unfamiliar with. They would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. And in that is that declaration to love the Lord with all the heart, soul, and might in the New Testament, it's translated with that word mind. In Mark 12, verse 30, adds with all thy strength to further identify what this thought is. Simply, if I can put it this way, it's to love God with all of yourself, with all of your being, with everything you are. And then... Jesus quoted the second half of Leviticus 19.18. If you go to Leviticus 19, you find that there's just a variety of general statutes, principles, guides that God gave to his people. And in the second half of verse 18 was this thought that you should love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so Jesus highlights these two connected thoughts, these two connected exhortations that every Jew was very familiar with, but then he made a bold statement. Why bold? Because there were 613 commands, and the typical Jew of the day believed that wasn't even enough. But now Jesus takes just these two and he makes this statement, see it again in verse number 40. On these two commandments, what? Hang all the law and the prophets. God gave you 613. And you've determined that's not even enough. You come to me asking, what's the greatest I'm going to give you two and tell you that all the others hang on are 
founded on, are based upon these two. Love God and love others. And if we wanted to, we could condense it even just down to one. Love. Jesus would make similar statements in in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, for example. Notice what the Bible says there. Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, the basis of that kind of behavior would be what? Love. Paul wrote this. Notice in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Paul wrote, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath what? Fulfilled the law. But wait a minute, Paul. God gave 613 commandments. Yes, but if you love one another, you fulfilled it. You obeyed God. You've done what he wanted you to do. Paul goes on and he says, For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment. Was Paul not very familiar with the law? No, he knew it well. He just didn't want to cite it all here. If there's any other commandment that comes to your mind... It is briefly comprehended in this saying. In other words, I could condense it all down to this one thought. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the what? Fulfilling of the law. The Apostle John penned extensive teaching on love. Write these passages down because we're not going to read them this morning. 1 John 3, 10 through 18, as well as 1 John 4, 7 through 21. Extensive teaching on this thought of love and how it's the fulfillment of God's design, his plan for us. Over and over again, Jesus identified love as the highest calling and duty of man. But if we could further extend it accurately because of some truth that we'll see, it's the highest calling and duty of the child of God. So this morning, I want to draw three general principles from the conversation between Jesus and the lawyer. And then in the evening service, I'm going to give you some more detailed application as it relates to your life in your ministry. But let's focus on these general principles right now. First, while this principle is not identified in the text specifically, it is certainly identified throughout Scripture and foundational to loving God and others. What is that principle? Don't miss this. Make sure you get it in your thought, in notes if you're taking notes. It's this. The basis of loving God with all I am 
and loving my neighbor as myself is the love of God for and to me through Jesus. What does that mean? That means simply this. I am not going to be able to love God as I should, as he calls me to. And I'm not going to be able to love others as God calls me to without a recognition of an understanding of a focus on the love that God has to me and for me through Jesus Christ. I do want us to look at a few of those verses from 1 John chapter 4. So notice in your Bible, if you would, with me, 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, as John is going to really drive this thought home to our hearts. 1 John 4, beginning in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And then jump down to verse 19. We love him because what? He first loved us. Think of these statements that John penned. Two simple statements. Love is of God, and God is love. Love is of God, and God is love. Do you understand today? that you can only know perfect love because of God. From no one else, from nowhere else can you know perfect love. I am sure that your mama loved you or loves you. I'm sure she does or did. But not even your mama loved or loves you perfectly. Only God can and does. And what we come to recognize from the word of God is that understanding more and more of his love to you and for you grounds you. It enables you to love him and others as he has called you to. Okay, so how does God love you? What does John tell us? He sent his son. His son became the propitiation for our sins. What does that mean? Jesus, God's son, became a sacrifice that turned away the wrath of God from you because of sin. When John tells us that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, what he means is this. You were in God's sights. You were, you were God's target. 
of wrath. Why? Because of your sin. I was in God's target. I know hunting is a pretty big deal around here. A lot of people are engaged in and like to hunt. You ever, those of you who have hunted, that, it, that adrenaline that begins to run when you get that buck in your sights. I mean, you've, you've been hunting this particular buck hunting season after hunting season. And he only seems to come out during shooting time when it's not season. And you're so tempted, aren't you, to, to go ahead and take him out. But when he comes out during shooting time, during hunting season, he's in your sights. He, you've got him right in your target, ready for that kill shot. The Bible identifies the truth that that is us in relation to God because of our sin. We're under his wrath. Wrath that we justly deserve. But in his love, God sent Jesus. And in dying on the cross, Jesus became propitiation. He became a sacrifice that turned away God's wrath so that no longer am I the target of his wrath, but I am the target of his love. He offers me forgiveness of my sin to those who trust him. And here, John tells us that that love that God has for me provides the basis for me to love him and to love others as he calls me to. So, if you and I are struggling to love him, if we're struggling to love others, what we need to do is come back to the recognition of focus on the love that he has for us and has shown us through his son Jesus Christ. The second principle I want to give you from this text is this. Just as no one can obey the 613 commandments that make up God's law perfectly. No one can love God and others perfectly at all times. I mean, can you say today that you love God perfectly? Anyone? Anyone here today say, you know what? There is not one inch of me anywhere that does not love God perfectly. I do. Every, every inch of my being. Every inch of my being loves everybody else perfectly. We can't claim that, can we? The commentator, John Phillips, wrote these words. The Lord thus sidestepped the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and chose one well-known and all-embracing commandment. Nine of the Ten Commandments of the Decalogue are stated in the negative, but Jesus summed all up in the positive. Instead of emphasizing the things we have done that we ought not to have done, the first and great commandment emphasizes the thing we have not done that we ought to have done. Who apart from Jesus has ever loved God with every beat of his 
heart, with all the faculties and endowments of his soul, and with all the strength and dynamic of his might. God is to be loved with all our being, and nothing is to be preferred before him. Who here can claim that you've done that? I can't. Only Jesus could and did love God with all his heart, soul, and might perfectly at all times, as well as love others the same way. Think about this. To fail to love God or others is to fail to do the one thing God requires of us. You say, Pastor, how can you say that? Because all of the law is summed up in what? Love God and love others. If you love God with all your being, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, with all your heart, and you love others as yourself, if you do that perfectly at all times in every way, guess what? You'll have perfectly obeyed God. But we don't. And to fail to do so is to fail to do the one thing that God requires of us and so praise god (laughs) praise god that he loves us and extends his grace though we have not loved him as we should praise god that he loves us and extends his grace though we have not loved others as we should god loved us so perfectly and completely that he gave his son to die in our place that we might be saved and so if you're here or watching or listening and you know i've not that way i've not loved others that way praise god that he's provided the sacrifice in jesus so you could be saved believe on him today he'll save you he'll wash you he'll cleanse you of that sin and stain he'll deliver you from condemnation and set your place in heaven with him for all of eternity we can't do it perfectly but there is a third principle to draw from the passage today the conversation and that is this reality that love represents the highest calling and duty of the child of god you say pastor you just got through saying we can't do it perfectly That's right. And so thank God that we have grace and forgiveness for our failures. But can I remind you, child of God, that just as grace provides forgiveness for your failures, grace also provides the help that you need for obedience. God's grace deals with your sin it deals with your failure and provides forgiveness but god's grace also provides the strength the enabling the help that you need for obedience every think of this every new testament penman Starting in Matthew, going through Revelation, not necessarily every book, but every writer identifies love for God and love for others as God's desire for his followers. Every penman at some point through penning the New Testament lets us know, hey, what is God's 
God's desire for you? What is God's greatest desire for me? It is that you would love him first and love others as you love yourself. And so, if love is the highest calling and duty of the child of God, then would you not agree that pursuing love should be our priority? If above anything else, God wants you and I as his children to love him and love others, then shouldn't that become our highest priority as his children? We've already seen how Jesus highlighted this. Paul highlighted it in Romans chapter 13 as we read earlier. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Think of it. The, the, the love chapter as we sometimes call it. After Paul has finished a discussion of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he goes on into 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and he, he tells us, hey, if you're, going to, if you're going to practice these spiritual gifts without love, you might as well just not even worry about it. Why? Because without love, it's meaningless. It, it's nothing. He goes on toward the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and he says, hey, here's three great Christian virtues, qualities. Faith, hope, charity, love. But the greatest of these is charity, love. John, all through 1 John, read all five chapters Almost without fail in each of those five chapters, you're going to see John tell you and I, love God and love others. And if you don't love others, there's something lacking in your love for God. If you don't obey the Lord, there's something lacking in your love because love is obedience or love leads to obedience. And so what is the commitment that we need to make today? Simply, we could just say we need to make a commitment to focus on this theme. Love God. Love others. We need to make up our minds that I'm not perfect in this area. But by God's grace... I'm going to tap into the help that he provides to obey. That commitment may mean I'm going to make loving God and loving others my number one priority in 2023. Growing in this area in recognition that truthfully it is the highest calling and duty of the child of God. To love him and to love others. How do we do it? Let's start right with these principles. To love God and love others, I need to have an understanding of, a recognition of, a focus on his love for me through Christ. I can't do it perfectly, but God's grace provides forgiveness. 
for my sin when I fail and also help so that I can obey. And then it is the highest calling. Will we make it our priority? In tonight's service, we're going to see five fic applications from the theme. But this morning, can we just simply focus on a commitment as an individual, as a family unit, as a church, a local body of believers to love God? and to love others. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? That is the call today. I'm asking each of us To make a commitment to prioritize loving God and others as he calls us to. We'll look at more of how that plays out in our lives this evening, but for now, would you do that? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. It it really should be something that is 100% participation, but I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand to agree to that. That's too easy. I'm asking you right now in your heart to make the commitment to him yourself. 